This is The Shift Podcast. On The Shift Daily Podcast, are you okay with forced monkey labor? Plus a conversation about Ryan's favorite stuffy, Swinger the Monkey, which may or may not have gone wrong. Uh, swarms of bees. We love bees here on The Shift. We have James Dankin on. He's an expert talking about boredom. The conversation, surprisingly not boring, because it was fantastic. Never thought about boredom that way. And in case you missed it, and more storytelling from computers with Ryan O'Donnell on the Shift Daily Podcast. You can download it from your favorite podcast platforms. Like it, share it, play it, listen back to it, share it with your friends. Maddie, how is your moon dial, by the way? Uh, let me just uh, check a sec. Hey, moon dial. Hey. Hey, sorry I uh, yelled at you yesterday. That was, uh, oh, dear. I, I could have been a lot uh, more tender. I, I do apologize. I Come on. <laughs> Come on. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. Come on. All right. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're ready. All right. Moondal is ready. <laughs> Here, Moondal. Here, Moondal. Are you okay? Are you okay stories where we ask you a question? Are you okay with something? You can let us know if you are or are not okay. Comment anything. 877-399-9898. Are you okay with monkeys? Uh, generally. Um, you know, they're, they're funny. Uh, they can be really rude, um, especially with themselves. But they, uh, yeah, I like monkeys, man. I love monkeys. Who doesn't love monkeys? I like the... Uh... Exactly. I like the the monkey from uh, Kung Fu Panda a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a great movie. Um, my favorite stuffed animal growing up was this monkey that had a really long tail, and I called him Swinger, and I would just hold it by the tail and whip it around, and the tail's still wow. on. Like, it hasn't it hasn't frayed at all. So uh, I, I love monkeys, and I think it's really cool watching them do very human things, even if it's kind of spooky, thinking, you know, like I saw a video of a of an ape. I know they're not a monkey, but using a canoe, and it was like it was just very weird, but impressive. What about um, you know double entendres and the Bugs Bunny shows and all those things? After having a monkey named Swinger, um, and your parents probably laughed at that. Now that you're older, do you look back at that differently? You know, I've had that stuffed animal for 24 years, and you may have just ruined the name for me because nobody's ever mentioned that before. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not changing uh, it. Swinger. Well, I, I, that, there's my childhood um, ignorance there, and yeah, I love it. Just gone. Just like that, hey? <laughs> hey, Matt, by the way, remind me to tell you later I have an idea for in case you missed an intro for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Will do. All right. Are you okay with monkeys? Well, we obviously are if they're swingers. We have yet another contender for the headline of the year already. Here's the headline. Target joins Costco in dropping coconut milk brand over forced monkey labor allegations. What? <laughs> oh, poor, poor swinger. If you have poo, fling it now. You heard that right. Forced monkey labor. This is ABC7 with more. PETA says it was in talks with Costco about forced monkey labor in Chalca coconut milk products. PETA says Costco cut ties with the company after hearing from thousands of concerned shoppers. PETA says a lot of people choose coconut milk instead of cow's milk because they don't want to support the cruelty of animals. PETA did an investigation in Asia and found terrified young monkeys in Thailand that were kept chained, abusively trained, and forced to climb trees to pick coconuts that are used to make coconut milk and other products. Huh. According to PETA, over 26,000 stores in the United States have cut ties with this brand. Choka Chauka has denied the allegations and said that all of its suppliers have signed a pledge not to use monkey labor and ensure that they comply with audits by the Thailand Ministry of Agriculture. Okay, first takeaway is... There's a thing called monkey labor? Yeah. Forced can, monkey you, labor. You can kind of train them to go up, grab coconuts, and throw them down. Wow. But yeah. is it forcing them? Like, oh, oh, yeah, they're caged. It's like they're, they're oh, okay. like it's on a plantation, 
you know, that's, uh, you know, oh, okay. segregated like land and they can't leave and they're not free. They're put in cages. It's like right. literally nine to five. But like we don't cages. feed you. Go get the coconut. Then you get a little bit of food. We don't feed you. Go yeah. get the coconut. We get. All right. Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. That does sound horrible. Um, Rob from Parkland is on fire with his jokes here because he has now renamed your stuffy. <laughs> uh, is now will be known as Swinger the Love Monkey. The Love <laughs> Monkey. The no, love monkey. leave him alone. <laughs> the Love Monkey. Okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, how about Shock the Monkey this hour? We'll do that. Yes. We'll figure something out. Okay. Since we're on the um, since we're on the uh, animal kick here, did you have any stuffed animals that were bees? By the way, right? No, I treated them with love and respect. We're not going to we're not going to like ruin your childhood if we talk about bumblebees. No, I didn't have any bumblebees. All right. Are you okay? Are you okay with bees? I love bees. Hell yeah, yeah I am. I like bees, you know, the, the you know, the whole honey thing. Uh, you know, they're cute. They've got stripes. They've got a stinger on their uh, their rump. Um, I, I love them, man. Who doesn't love bees? Come on, man. Yeah, we would all be dead without them. They're super crucial to the ecosystem of this planet, and they're really cool animals. And uh, at the Calgary Stampede every year, they have really cool bee exhibits where you can see how they form their their hives, and it's it's insane that they can do it. I love it. Mm-hmm. I've seen and some black of those exhibits. They color. They are really uh, black and yellow, black and yellow. I um, I I I see that. I also see the contrast with my partners in this show, where um, Matt was like, "I love bees. They have a stinger on their rump," and Ryan's like, "I love bees. They're crucial to the ecosystem." And that's what it's <laughs> like working on the shift. <laughs> Very easily amused people here. Yeah. All right. Um. Let's just hit the uh, hit the audio there, Maddie. A crash involving an 18-wheeler near downtown caused quite a buzz this morning, literally. <laughs> According to San Antonio Fire Department spokesman Joe Erringway, it's too bad his name wasn't like B-something, the truck owned by a bee removal business turned over while trying to navigate a highway. No injuries have been reported, but swarms of thousands of angry bees were in the area as officials worked to clear the highway. The beer, the bees that were the beers, the bees that were still in the truck were killed by foam sprayed by firefighters as a safety measure. <laughs> so much for the, uh, the good, healthy removal of the bees. However, a number of bees did manage to escape. The bees are amazing creatures and we all would be dead without them to honor the bees. Here's a cheeky bleep. Of the B movie, which was unbelievable, by the way. Love the B movie. Thanks, Jerry. Um, and this was created by YouTuber Ninja Panda. Three days of college. I'm glad I took off one day in the middle and just f***ed around the hive. You did come back different. You going to his funeral? No, I'm not going to his funeral. Everybody knows you f*** someone, you die. You don't waste it on a squirrel. He was such a hothead. So you'll just f- us to death? We'll sure try. <laughs> Dad, do you ever get bored in the same every day? Son, let me tell you something about s***ing. You grab that dick and you just move it around and you stir it around. You get yourself into a rhythm. It's a beautiful thing. Okay. You got a rain advisory today and as you all know, bees cannot in rain. And a reminder for all you rookies, bee law number one, absolutely no f***ing humans. I gotta say something. She's my I gotta say something. Yeah. I am a bee, and, uh, you know, I'm not supposed to be doing this, but oh. they were all trying to me. Humans. Humans. I can't believe you humans. Giant, scary humans. What were they like? Huge and crazy. They crazy. Oh, no, 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 no. You're a human florist. Well, well we're not f***ing. She's my and she understands me. So, it was really nice working with you guys. <laughs> okay, just to be clear... <laughs> That is a perfectly clean cartoon movie for children that yeah. perfectly clean words have been bleeped out Yes, to make it sound like that. There is nothing profane in there but your imagination. Yeah. If you think that, uh, about the things that you thought about that we all thought about when we listened to it, 
that's that's on you. That's on your <laughs> imagination. <laughs> Don't blame us because your brain goes to the ditch the minute it hears a beep. Mine did. Ooh, psychology of the beep. That'd be a good piece. Um, the bee movie. Honoring the bees who have a stinger on their rump and they're crucial for our ecosystem. And that's why we call this the shift. My <laughs> goodness. Um, do, 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 do. Yeah, let's do this one. Are you okay? Are you okay with tow trucks? Absolutely. You know, they're very crucial. You know, they've got like a, like a big rig on their rump and they like, you know, they, they, they attach on their rump. Yeah. They attach that, <laughs> that rig to your, your, you know, your front fender and they take you out of jams and it's uh yeah. Tow trucks are amazing. I think mm -hmm. except for, you know, some of the more sketchy ones out there, but you know, they help you get out of jams and I salute the tow truck drivers out there. Mm -hmm. Tow trucks are crucial to the ecosystem of our driving experience. <laughs> I thought I would just build off of that. Yeah, tow trucks are fine. You know, uh, the the only complaint, the only bad experience I've ever had with a tow truck was uh, AMA in Alberta is obviously swamped with COVID and all that. And uh, my mom and I had a flat tire and uh, the wait was, I think, two days for a tow truck to come and pick us up. So we did it on our own. Well, we had people come and change it for us. But yeah, no, tow trucks are cool. Tow trucks are cool. Tow trucks are the bumblebees of the driving world. I would have to, first of all, share with you that I'm a big fan of the Highway Through Hell TV show and the Jamie Davis motor trucking that uh, runs the Coquihalla and the, all the spin-off shows that came from that, too. In fact, so much so um, when you drive the Coquihalla, you drive through hope, um, sort of merit, and you can go find all the, the lots. Just saying. Okay, the story. Are you okay with tow trucks? A U.S. man, more specifically, a Florida man, clearly isn't okay with tow trucks because he stole a company's tow truck as revenge for the time they towed his car. That's actually kind of <laughs> smart. Hire a tow truck to tow a tow truck is funny. I have seen a tow truck tow a tow truck. The irony is inexcusable. Late really? Tuesday evening, Florida Highway... Uh, Patrol troopers received a tip that a tow truck had been stolen out of Orange County. One trooper eventually spotted the stolen car. Car store towing. Vehicle driving north on a highway just after midnight. Whoop, whoop. After getting pulled over. 30-year-old Amy Ongo admitted to stealing the truck. Police say a search of Ongo and the truck resulted in the recovery of meth, Xanax, and hydrocodone. <laughs> Ongo was arrested and charged with grand theft auto, given a free video game and three counts of possession of a controlled substance. Give tow truck to tow truck. My brain hurts. Take two. So close. You almost made it. And you're even doing a voice too. Like, Give tow truck drivers a break. They're just doing their jobs. Here's a clip from a tow trucker on YouTube. Hey. What's going on, bro? You don't have to pay it out, man. You're, you see, you, you're hooked. You're off the ground. No, bro, you got to pay it, man. Office manager called it in. If you want to pay a drop fee, you can't. It's a hundred bucks. Hey, you didn't tell me anything. They didn't uh, give me a car. See where you parked at right here, man. I ain't trying to be mean. It's my job. You see where you parked at, right? Yeah. You can't park there, man. The manager called it in. I'm on that if you don't want to pay it, then I'll tow it out. I didn't have any time. They, they okay, it, it don't matter, man. You, you, you're illegally parked, man. You can't block a walkway. You can't block a walkway. It's just That's just what it is. Yeah. And I'm not trying to be hard. It's my job. It's what I do. I yank cars, man. That's what I do. <laughs> That's what I do. That's what I do. This is the Shift Podcast. A conversation has come up, which is amazing for me. And you know me well enough to know that I love words. I love language. Um, I love the experience of all of it. And I was with my psychologist one day. Her name's Patty. I call her my Patty. And I was going through stuff like we all go through stuff. And I said to Patty, I said, you know, I just wish there was a map. I wish there was a map. And she goes, well, there kind of is a map. And she sat down with me and we did some meditation stuff, some presence things, just to sort of sit back into how did my body feel? How did my heart feel? It was remarkable. Changed my life. I also discovered that when I could do that and sit down and when I was doing my writing about words, that 
I could feel that same meditation. I was like, wait a second, what if there's another map? And I did that. I started writing about words. I started worrying about words and time and all of these pieces of the puzzle. And there is one other piece that James Dankert has been working on that I haven't gotten to yet. This is brand new. I've spent some time around it. I have some ideas around it, but I really don't know. And it's the boredom piece. What is boredom? And in the world of time, what is boredom? Wow, we've all been there. I used to play with my trucks when I was a kid. Transformers was a great solution to not be bored. But we all suffer from it. We all experience it. We all go through it. James, thanks for spending some time with us here on the show. It's my pleasure. So your research is the study of being bored, which sounds like you had one hell of a boring weekend. and You were like, hey, this could be a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not, the, it, it's not the greatest sort of opening conversation at a cocktail party. So yeah. what do you do? I what study do you boredom, do? Right? Um, but it's any, for me, it's anything but boring. And you're right. It's not that I had one boring weekend and I thought I might study this. It's that I experienced boredom a lot um, in my 20s and 30s uh, prominently, and I still experience it now. And I find it uncomfortable. I find it restless and agitating. And so I want to understand it more um, in the naive hopes of perhaps of overcoming it or outrunning it. And uh, I think now in my, my later years, closing on 50, I don't actually think that you can or even should try and outrun boredom, but that's been a, a pretty fun journey to go on. So excusing the extremely ironic love affair of boredom, um, how, how do you research boredom? There's lots of different ways to research boredom. The first thing you might do is find ways in which you can make people bored, just get them to be in that state of boredom and then ask them to tell you about it. They tell you about how bored they are and then ask them to tell you about other things that might be related to it. You can also measure their um, physiological reactions, which we did do some years ago. So you can look at changes in their heart rate, changes in things that we call a skin conductance level, which is essentially how much salt you have in your sweat. And we know that that's associated with a, a nervous system reaction. So we did that a while ago and we found an interesting sort of pattern that, that didn't really, it, it sort of looked like when you were bored, you were restless and you were agitated. So we found higher levels of cortisol in people when we made them bored. But it also looked like your body was just not focused and not paying attention very well. So when you actually are attending to something, when you're focused on something and you really got your mind set on it, your heart rate tends to drop. But when we made people bored, their heart rate increased. Really? And also when you're attending to something, your skin conductance, so that salt in your, in your sweat, that tends to go up um, when you're focusing on, on something and attending. And we found that it went down when people were bored. So we took that as a, a pretty strong indication that when you're bored, it's this, essentially it's this conundrum boredom. It's that you want something, you want to be engaged with some purposeful action or goal, but you can't figure out what that thing should be. Um, oh. and, you know, and you're, so you're sort of disengaged from the world around you, but it's uncomfortable because you don't want to be disengaged. I'm so excited because I just wrote down sense of purpose, which is interesting. It's, this is all brand new discovery for me. So this, I love this. Um, oh, well, let's start with that. That's sort of how it occurs to us. Let's start with the history of it because the history of boredom uh, is, which by the way, out of my skull, psychology of boredom is a book you can get and dig into this too uh, from James and his, his crew. So let's go into the history of boredom because it's surprising, I think it was to me and to most people to learn that boredom's never really been defined as a thing. It's just sort of been this experience that has changed over time, and it's never really been looked at this way. Can you give us the, the history of it, and then we'll get into how we can deal with it and what happens? Yeah, so as a word, um, if you're you know, into language, Shane, the, the um, first sort of usages of boredom in the English language uh, – you know, we, we get the word bore um, in Shakespeare and, and earlier to refer to someone that we don't really want to be spending much time talking with. But boredom itself is first comes in a Charles Dickens novel, Bleak House. But the notion that just because we've got the word in the 1850s, that that's when we first experienced the state is wrong. Um, there's plenty of evidence that boredom has been with us as humans and it's probably evident in non-human animals as well. Any of your listeners that have dogs 
Well, I'm pretty confident we'll know when their dog gets bored. <laughs> so it starts running around and chewing on their shoes. Um, so, so the experience is evident in, in non-human animals, and the experience has been evident in literature and uh, philosophy in particular for at least 2,000 years. Um, so one of the, the, the earliest sort of mentions of boredom that I like the most comes from Seneca, a Roman uh, philosopher. And Seneca talks about, he doesn't use the word boredom, he talks instead about monotony and nausea. And he says, you know, day follows night, follows day, and everything's the same and nothing changes. And he's lamenting the fact that there's nothing new or stimulating or novel in his life. And he says it brings on a kind of nausea. Um, and, you know, that to me is a, a pretty good description of, of, uh, of boredom. So it has had a long history. In terms of uh, research and science, we started looking at it in some detail in the early part of the 20th century um, in relation to sort of assembly line work, because we'd had this industrial revolution. We started to be able to mass produce things, but in mass producing things, we'd put people on an assembly line standing in one place all day long doing the same damn thing. It's monotonous, it's repetitive, it's boring. Um, and so in that, that time, so, um, people in Germany, people in the UK started to sort of see that there were psychological problems for asking humans to do these monotonous things. Um, and so we started to investigate boredom from that perspective. But it's probably not since the, not until the sort of 1980s and 90s that we started to give it much more uh, close attention in research to try and understand what's happening in the brain, what are the other sort of personality traits that are associated with being prone to boredom, um, and what are the circumstances that lead to it. So I, I, hopefully that gives you a sort of thumbnail sketch of what the history of this is like. Yeah, well, it, it really does. And the, the monotony is an interesting word, isn't it? Um, so the experience of boredom, we go through it. Um, I think as adults, it seems to me, at least for my life, I've become really good at doing everything I can to avoid boredom. How do we avoid boredom? Uh, if, from my experience, it would be if we're going to talk about what is boredom, we probably need to discuss what is not boredom, right? Because they're one and the same. So, I mean, for me, not boredom is new projects, more work, more business development, uh, drinking, uh, watching Netflix, you know, um, watching the, the kids play hockey. What about well, when we used to be allowed to watch the kids play hockey? <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, you know, that to me is not boredom. Is that pretty typical that created a stream? I mean, my phone, this is this, this is ironically the biggest solution to boredom that creates more boredom in the whole wide world. Yeah. So, Right there, you identified actually not one thing that's an opposite of boredom, but at least three. So I'll start with the kids and watching hockey, right? It's, it's for any parent that's got a kid well, in, in any sport, but uh, it's meaningful to sit on the sidelines and watch your kid play hockey. You're not actually doing much. You're just watching, but you're proud of your kid and you want to watch them do that and you want to watch them succeed and cheer them on. Maybe you're anxious about them getting hurt as well and that kind of stuff. So or you're grossly you're disappointed at how hard they're working. Could go either way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could go either way. Um, my, my wife remembers watching her brother when he was younger play uh, baseball when he was a kid, and, and that consisted of him building sandcastles in the outfield. Right. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> that's good. But, yeah, I mean, so that's, that's one class of thing. Is the, the opposite of boredom is doing something that's richly meaningful to you. Richly meaningful. But, but, the next thing that I'll say that you mentioned is you said, you know, not boredom to you means more work, more projects. That also is richly meaningful to you, but there's a key thing about that that I think is important relative to the third class that you identified, which was drinking and your phone, right? Mm -hmm. You're not alone there. A lot of us turn to these things as distractions from boredom. But the, the new projects and the new work are active engagements in the world. Mm. You're choosing. You're going out and you're saying, I want to start this project. I want to get this thing happening. The drinking and the phone is passively having the world come to you, right? And so it occupies your time. The phone's a really great example. It occupies your time and you, you know, do this all with doom scrolling on Twitter or whatever you do. Um, but you're being a kind of passive recipient and it doesn't satisfy the thing that boredom is really pushing you to do. And what boredom is pushing you to do is to establish what we call your agency. That is, 
your sense of being the author of your own life, being in control of what you choose to do. And there's some great research coming out over the last three or four years, prominently from a guy called John Elhai at the University of Toledo, where he looks at our relationships with our smartphones. And there is this relationship that says that people who are prone to boredom are driven to their phones as a pacifier for boredom. Well, but pacifier it does, is as you a good out, word, right? It, it is a good exactly word, right. But it does, as you point out, lead to a kind of vicious cycle, right? Because it doesn't satisfy that urge to be an effective agent, to be showing yourself, to demonstrate to yourself that I can be in control and I can choose what I do next. Whoa. Okay. So the experience of boredom, I think we understand. We're there. We're dissatisfied. We want something more. Now, from that, it would seem like most everybody reacts differently into what's next. So that would just be kind of a life experience, life tool thing at that point. And if you can't seem to break the cycle of boredom, you, the natural thing to to do would be to find more tools. No different than if you don't know how to make bread, you, you're uncomfortable because you want to have bread. Therefore, you learn how to make bread. Is that too simplistic? I don't think that's too simplistic at all. Uh, the, the, the challenge of boredom, in a sense, is that it's this uncomfortable feeling that's sort of objectless. You, you have a desire, you want to be engaged, but you don't know what you want to be engaged with. Whereas if you're hungry, well, you know what you want. I mean, maybe you don't know if you want a bit of bread or some pasta or just some, you know, or some cookies or whatever. Yeah, maybe you, you don't know exactly what piece of food you want, but you know you want food. Boredom is worse than hunger because you don't really even know what you want. And so the distress, the restlessness sort of stays with you. But yes, you, you might want to think about it in terms of cultivating more tools. One of the things that people love to believe in, and I sort of love to hate, is this notion that um, boredom begets creativity. Boredom's going to make you creative. And the reason why I hate that is just quite simply the logic. Being bored and cultivating boredom, so you know, actively seeking boredom in your life, isn't going to make you a creative person. It's just going to make you bored a lot. <laughs> right. But, but for those people who have cultivated creative skills and creative outlets, when you're bored, you can turn to those and they're very effective ways of getting rid of your boredom. And they're very adaptive ways of getting rid of your boredom. I mean, one of the examples I love in our current context in the pandemic, I don't know if you saw this, but there was a British sportscaster in the early months of the pandemic who did a Zoom interview with his dogs. And he was doing an annual performance review of his dogs, you know, and, <laughs> and it was just, it was hilarious. Um, and so it's well worth uh, looking up. What he's done there, he's taken his skill set, he's a sports broadcaster, and he's, uh, you know, uh, has some skills in, in doing these kinds of interview type things. And then he's done something creative and funny with his dogs to deal with the fact that he's in lockdown, his activities are constrained, and he's maybe bored. That outlet is fantastic. Boredom didn't give him the skills to do it. Boredom just gave him the signal to go and do it. And I think that that's important because, on the other hand, if you want to believe that boredom can make you creative, then you have to accept all of the negative examples too, right, where boredom turns people to quite destructive ends. Um, there's a story from a number of years ago now, I think 2013 or so, of a, a young man called Christopher Lane who was an Australian pursuing a, a dream of playing Major League Baseball in the United States. And he was out jogging one morning in Oklahoma and three teenagers shot him dead. And when the police asked them why they did it, one of them said, well, we were bored, so we decided to kill somebody. And this, I think, is a really important point about boredom. It doesn't make you do anything. It just tells you that you want to be doing something else. Right. What you choose to do, that's entirely on your shoulders. And, what, and if you can, as you say, find tools, cultivate adaptive and positive outlets for when you get bored, then, yeah, you probably won't experience it that often or that intensely because you'll have those outlets. But for people who don't cultivate those outlets, it can turn to destructive ends. Okay, you're going to be my new bestie because this is like so many questions. We talk about this for days. So what I hear you saying about boredom is similar to being alone, right? There, We often describe about, well, I can be alone but not lonely. I can be doing nothing but not bored. 
So somebody who meditates is all by themselves. They're uh, inside this pocket of, you know, self-creation, self-awareness, personal study, whatever they're doing. They're by themselves. They could be by themselves for 90 minutes, but the last thing they are is bored, right? Um, they're not doing anything. So being bored doesn't mean not doing anything is what I'm hearing from that. Does that yeah, matter? Absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I, I often have to sort of talk people um, out of some of the myths that they have about boredom. Right. One thing that boredom is doing nothing. And then the, the, the um, corollary of that is, you know, the boredom is laziness. Boredom is not laziness, right? Um, and boredom is not apathy. Apathy is apathy, right? So when we, when we don't care uh, about things, then we're feeling apathetic. But when we're bored, we absolutely care and we want to be doing something. And the other thing that you highlight there with the meditation example, the person might be alone and they may well look like they're doing nothing, but they're not. They're meditating. And the key thing that they're doing is that they chose to do that. So, I mean, one of the things, one of the uh, substances I spend too much time imbibing is coffee. And, you know, we're stuck in this. You can see in, our, in, in my uh, Zoom background here, I'm stuck in my basement. <laughs> um, this is where I work now from, for, from home. Well, it's a beautiful a very- green trombone, by the way. I'm going to just push. <laughs> like, there's a keyboard. There's a bike. Is that a ukulele? There's an electric guitar. Oh, is that it's a ukulele totally- back there, too? Yeah, ukulele. Uh, um, big fans uh, of ukulele here on the show. Nice. A green trombone. The green wow. trombone is a plastic trombone that my son got. That uh, I don't think it's had very many pretty sounds come out of it. <laughs> um, yeah, so so I'm stuck in my basement. This is where I work from home. I will say I'm extraordinarily privileged to be able to still do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but if I get back to coffee, um, you know, I can have as much coffee while I'm at home as I would have when I was no- at work normally. But when I was at work, I could choose two or three different outlets to go to to get coffee. I could choose I, I want a latte from Starbucks if that's the kind of if I want to waste my money. Um, or I could go somewhere else and have a different kind of coffee or whatever. And I can choose when I go, and that gets me out of my office and out of my surroundings. Um, but here, stuck at home, it's the same coffee from the same place and, and has you know no variance to it, no, no change, no difference on a day-to-day basis. So ostensibly... The only thing that's changed about that sort of fairly mundane story is my choices. I don't get to choose where to go and what to do in terms of which coffee I want. Sounds very trivial, and in many ways it is, but that's the distinction between being alone, unoccupied but not bored, versus alone, unoccupied and bored. If I choose to be alone, if I choose not to be occupied, to either meditate or relax that choice immediately removes boredom from the equation. But if I can't choose, like we can't in this pandemic lockdown, then boredom becomes a bit more of a problem. It also raises the question, do you actually like coffee or do you just like getting out and seeing people? It's exactly that. Uh, You know, I I do like coffee, but um, part of it is that, you know, you get out of your office, you have incidental interactions with people that you didn't predict. Right. And you see other people and you see a different environment. Yeah, it's absolutely about that. So, okay. Will you come back on the show, first of all? Because, like, <laughs> seriously, like, I have pages sure. and pages of scenarios here. I want to talk about this inside marriage. I want to talk about dopamine hits. Um, the, the, the thing, the certainty versus uncertainty, the, the irony that I find in all this is that we feel bored. Therefore, we feel uncertain because we aren't in control of, you know, like you said, um, of, of what we choose in life. And it leans into my writing about the decision between decision, uh, the, the difference between decisions and choices, um, and how they're so distinct from each other. So when we choose things, that's sort of just an expression of ourselves. But when we have to decide, we're like, well, this is boring. This is not boring. Which one am I going to choose? It's like the classic question. What do you want for dessert? Do you want vanilla or chocolate? And the answer could be, well, I don't like chocolate, so I'll choose vanilla. The irony is you just might like apple pie. So you might say no thank you to all of it. But a lot of us don't do that. Right. So um, when we're in this world of uncertainty, we're trying to create certainty. When when you boil down some existential study stuff, really the good stuff happens when you're uncertain, right? And certainty is that control piece of the familiar. So you're trying to get yourself into being stimulated and you're in uncertainty, which should be stimulation because it's uncertain, but you try to get back into certainty to find stimulation because you know where to find it. 
I think ultimately what you're talking about there is a Goldilocks zone. So if things are too dramatically uncertain, if things are too uh, chaotic, right, and, and we don't know what's going to happen next, um, then I think that is a situation we want to move away from. If things are absolutely certain and we can predict with 100% guarantee what's going to happen next, we also want to move away from that, right, because that's just ultimately monotonous and not very meaningful. And there's a, a guy a guy called Oren Clapp that we refer to in the book who um, I think has passed away now, but he, he was a sociologist at the uh, University of Western Ontario in the 1980s. And he wrote a book called Overload and Boredom. And he's got this – he's basically – characterizing boredom as an information processing challenge. I have to, whenever I'm doing any information processing, anyone that works in IT uh, or computer uh, science or computer programming knows this, I have to be able to separate signal from noise. I have to be able to say this is the useful information, that's signal, and this is noise, this is irrelevant, it doesn't really matter, right? Um, and so he casts boredom as an information processing signal to noise challenge. When we have too much sort of signal that we can't, or too much information, we can't separate the signal from the noise easily. The analogy that my colleague John Eastwood likes to use is, you know, it's like trying to drink water from a fire hose. There's just too much coming at you and it's impossible to do. And in that circumstance, where there's so much information, think about all of the stuff that you could get on social media, it can be boring because you can't make any sense of that signal. Mm. But then if it's completely and utterly predictable, that too is boring because there's nothing new. There's nothing changing. There's nothing that you can inject yourself into and have some influence on. And the thing I love about uh, about Oren Clapp's book too is that he's got this quote in it, and I, I can't quote it word for word for you, but he's basically talking about the fact that we have these, you know, we wake up, we've got a pager that's paging us with messages. We've got messages on our fax machine. We, we, we listen to our music on our Sony Walkman, and then we go out in the street, and there's people with their ghetto blasters also listening to music. So he uses all these anachronistic things and devices and objects and sort of says, you know, you, you can't possibly make sense of that onslaught of noise. And when you read through it, you think, God, Oren Clapp's head would explode nowadays, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because if we, if we had a lot of information coming at us in the 1980s, we've got way more information coming at us now. And I think, you know, to, to extrapolate from that, you think about the sort of weird things that happened in American politics in the last couple of weeks. There's, I don't think that, that can be completely explained by this, but I think that one of the things that people do when there's so much noise and it's so hard to make sense of it is that they take their little bit and they latch onto it and hang onto it for dear life, right? And that's what one of the things that can breed belief in things like conspiracy theories and so on. Uh, that's remarkable. Because I mean, that and then that feeds directly into righteousness, the ego, and yep. a whole other like topic of uh, feeling safe and secure because of all that. Oh, my God. We James, we could like, seriously, um, can we can we, uh, can we get the guys in touch and, and schedule more because like, I want to talk about this in boredom in real in the trench uh, ways, uh, like inside the marriage, like, and how we get bored yeah. inside the marriage and the choices that we don't make. Then there's also, you know, um, there's obviously your coffee pot thing, but there's a real cause and effect thing here. Um, and I, I'm curious about sort of the soulful um, search about boredom, about, you know, that, that sense of purpose thing, right? Like I always say, like a bored dog tears apart its bed um, and barks at the window. And we yeah. as humans aren't a whole lot different than that. And um, we often will bark out the window, create drama. So there, there's so many different ways that we can talk about. We tangle, we collapse the cause and the effect, and we, we blame it all as one. And it seems like when we look at boredom as the experience of boredom, and maybe the soulful story that says, hey, by the way, you're not living into who you could be, um, that, um, you know, there's so much to tap into there. There, there is a lot. I just, the, the, there's a phrase, you mentioned the ego there, and there's a phrase that Oren Clapp uses that I just love. One response to the onslaught of information that we can have is what he calls ego screaming. Shout louder than the noise. And that, to me, just describes internet trolling and you know the, the Twitter wars that people have. People are just ego screaming, shouting as loud as they can to try and be heard above the noise. Um, and I, I think there's a really interesting sort of concept to be had there too. So, yeah, I'm happy to chat more about this um, as, as much as you like. Wow, that's that's uh, what a great place to leave that for the audience uh, and everybody listening. We call them shift heads, by the way, and um, 
And uh, this has been great. Thank you so much for the time. Uh, James Dankert, he's a professor, cognitive neuroscience research area head at Waterloo. Um, and the book about boredom, you can check it out. It's called Out of My Skull, Psychology of Boredom. And uh, we'll put those links up for everybody to, to to grab onto. Thank you so much. Like, my day's ruined now. You've ruined my day. <laughs> I'm going to be writing all day. Oh, I love it. So good. Thank you, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, talk to you soon. Thanks very much. It's the Shift Podcast. Matt MacArthur's here. Ryan O'Donnell's here. I'm Shane Hewitt. And it is time to begin with In Case You Missed It. In case you missed it on the radio, here's Swinger the Monkey. Oh. <laughs> and the ding. All right. For those who don't know, uh, earlier we were talking about how my favorite stuffed animal as a child was named Swinger. And Shane ruined it for me by putting it in adult context. So there you go. That was the last shred of my childhood I was still holding on to which has now faded away. It's wonderful. What? Um, <laughs> what? What did I do? Why are you blaming me? I guess it's the same thing as like the cheeky bleeps, right? You know, I didn't, I just inferred, but I'll give <laughs> you that one. Okay. So Ryan, here's what happened in case you missed that part of the show. Ryan shared the story about his monkey named Swinger and he used to swing it around by its tail and how amazing it was and uh and and how that was great. All I simply said is that um you know, why what is have you ever thought about like did this was you became an adult that that maybe it was one of these things that the double entendre Right? That, that, that got you? Like, did you catch up to this? And Ryan, for the first time ever, had this moment where he was like, whoa, what is no. happening? And I, I, so Ryan's thinking, young monkey, like, this is my favorite toy ever. And I was offering something a little bit different with it. Hey, sweetie, baby. <laughs> Swing I was going to bring him with me to my apartment. And now I'm thinking I might need to pack him up in a box. <laughs> I love you, baby. Feel like I feel, baby. You got me going bananas. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> got me going. Now he's into it. <laughs> yeah, I'm into it. There it is. All right, let's get in. Let's get on topic here. Wow, thanks, guys. Uh, my favorite Twitter user who I've mentioned many times, is back with another bot-created script, his first new one, like six months, and it's top tier. It's the Tweet of the Day. All right. I've mentioned this gentleman before, Keaton Patty, comedian, author. He has a very special bot that he uses to create scripts of various things, forcing it to watch a thousand hours of something and then making the computer program create a broken English script of that thing. I have shown you or read to you rather Rudy Giuliani speeches, a Joe Biden speech, an Olive Garden commercial. All of those were older ones that I kind of brought out from his basement of comedy. Very, very funny. Well, he put a new one up today and... I'm wondering if he's going to start a new book because he already has one out. And uh, this time he created a bot script for one of my favorite TV shows ever, a show that literally defined the early days of my childhood. Cruising on that main street, you're relaxed and feeling good. Next thing that you know, you'll see it. What's in my neighborhood? Surfing on the sideway, swinging through the stars. Yeah. Take a look at Wow. Yes. Oh, I love the Magic School. I read the books. Nice. I uh, played little flash computer games. And uh, well, now there's a script of a AI generated script of the Magic School bus. Would you like to hear it? Yes, please. So this is a computer deciding what a script of Magic School Bus should be. Yes, exactly. Cool. And it's compl it makes no sense whatsoever, which makes it funny. So <clears throat> the Magic School Bus, interior, schoolroom. A class of students spends time measuring birds. Student one says, my bird is one bird long. 
Student two, agreed. Where is our oddly teacher? A door dies as teacher Miss Frizzle is carried by 100 birds into the room. Miss Frizzle is weird science. See, she enjoys her job. Miss Frizzle, happy bird day, class. Your homework is to lay an egg. Will you do it for a grade? All students nod loudly, but student five does not. Student five, no egg for me. Birds are bad, and I will not learn to be like them. Miss Frizzle, learning is not a choice. Get in the bus and let it open your brain. Miss Frizzle aims her pet lizard at children, and they get onto the magic school bus. It can do anything a bus can do, and 15 things a bus can't do. <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> Student three, where are we field tripping? Miss Frizzle says, not to a where, but a when. That is a when and a where and a who, the time of the birds. The bus uses bus magic to take class to time of birds. Now bus transforms into bird in the sky, and everyone inside becomes a bird. The lizard still becomes a lizard. Student 5. I have wings and want to eat worm? Miss Frizzle. <laughs> now you get birds. Let's all fly like a school of fish. Air fish. Miss Frizzle and students jump off bird bus and flap wings. Student 5. No way. I will walk like a human. Student 5 does not flap wings and falls fast. Student 5 screams a fear of gravity. Miss Frizzle laughs with her beak. Miss Frizzle, class, we will soon learn how long birds live. Holy. Wow. <laughs> All right. Get that the... one's a bit of a different tone than the other ones. Get in the bus and open your brain. Your brain. <laughs> well, it's neat Check because I think it's kind of cool how the... Um... Uh, like the, it's almost like how the computers view us, and it's a bit of a yeah. look in the mirror, isn't it? it? It's fantastic. I love the uh, the door dies as Miss Teacher Miss Frizzle is carried by one hundred birds. Ah, <laughs> oh, fantastic. Anyway, moving on because it's been a, it's been at least a, I think two weeks since I've had some sneaker related news, but this is a big one. This is a big one because Nike is officially bringing back a Jordan One colorway. For the first time ever. On September 15th, Nike created a revolutionary new basketball shoe. On October 18th, the NBA threw them out of the game. Fortunately, the NBA can't stop you from wearing them. Air Jordans from Nike. Unfortunately, wow. the only way you can wear them is if you win the lottery so you can get a pair. This original colorway is the natural, sorry, the neutral gray. It is a all over white Jordan one with a gray swoosh and gray backing on the ankle. Now, it's a very simplistic shoe, but what's really neat about it is that it is the exact same construction as the original 1985 pairs. So if you buy a Jordan 1 today, it is new. It's got a different ankle, different cushioning. It's more modern. But this is an exact replica of 1985. Now, this isn't the first time that Nike's done this. Last year, they released the band colorway, which you just heard the commercial for. But this is interesting because the neutral grays came out in a very small numbers in 1985, and they have never been released since then, ever. So the retail price is going to be about $250 Canadian. It's more expensive than a traditional Jordan 1 because the materials on them are way more premium. And also it's, you know, a little bit different. And uh, they can say it's a collector's item so you can pay some more. And we all will. Uh, I'm going to guess that the resale on these will probably reach into the $3,000 market. Whoa. I think I think these will cost about $3,000. No question, maybe more. Uh, this is a hu the demand on this is crazy and these are gorgeous. If you look at these, this is peak 1980s sneakers and uh, it's really cool to see the new beginnings style back today. My only complaint is that these are coming up February 10th. My favorite Air Jordan sneaker of all time, the Air Jordan 6 Carmines, come out on the 13th. And I can only pick one of them, and I'm very much struggling to decide which one I'm going to try to go for. Knowing my luck, I'm not going to get either. But neat, mm. neat little stuff from Nike there. Now, but you know what's neat is that they're reselling the exact same shoe. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. 
100%. It's uh, it's crazy, the value of these. Like, in fact, if I go on right now, StockX, which is the main online sneaker reselling uh, marketplace in the world, by the way. So a original pair, like if you bought it from 1985, costs $23,000 if you bought a pair right now. Um, and if you buy the most recent package, which was a black and red Jordan 1, 1985. I don't know why it won't show me the colorway I'm looking for. Uh, but the white colorway, that's going for $2,500. And this will be even more limited. So yikes, not happening. Moving on in some uh, neat little uh, nerd information here, because it wouldn't be in case you missed it with me if there wasn't something nerdy. The Borderlands movie has casted some people. Borderlands is a very timeless, beloved video game franchise. It's incredibly cartoonish. It's all about, you know, being a badass in the wastelands of the world. And it's an interesting world to set up for a film. And video game movies have been slightly improving in quality. So fingers crossed. The interesting thing is that uh, they have casted Kevin Hart as the character Roland. And for me, it's a little bit of a weird one because I think Kevin Hart can play Roland, but Roland is much more like macho and like a big, big guy. And Kevin Hart is shorter than I am and I'm tiny. I thought Kevin Hart should play Claptrap, who is the robot, who's very sassy. And look, just for some evidence, just listen to this clip and you tell me that Kevin Hart couldn't play this. Finally found another Claptrap. Yeah, he's dead. Keep your wits about you, minion. This glacier's run by a bandit named Captain Flint. The jerk kept me as his torture plaything for a few months. We played games like dodge the blowtorch and don't get dunked into the pool of acid. I was really good at the first one. And he exploded. Oh, well. <laughs> Hilarious. Totally. Yeah, so Keep I thought it. it fit well. But there you go. No more video game movies coming out. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.